My Life in Typewriters, 1960s. It was one of those in-between summers. I'd outgrown sleepaway camp and wasn't old enough to be a camp counselor, so my mother had to patch together activities to keep me occupied. Typing class was the solution. Even though I had no occasion to use a typewriter, I didn't question the wisdom of this choice. Implicitly, I knew that typing was an essential skill for a woman in the working world. In fact, my class was only girls. My mother briefly worked as a secretary before she got married. She had her own typewriter, and I remember her setting it up on the kitchen table and typing out recipe cards, presumably to keep her QWERTY skills sharp. She would pull out the recipe card and gaze at it with evident pride. I used my mother's typewriter for the class. It was too bulky to put in the basket of my bicycle, so my mother dropped me off three mornings a week. I felt a sense of pride carrying that black typewriter in its case, imagining what it would be like to carry a briefcase filled with important papers to deliver, neatly typed, to my boss. I liked rolling the white sheet of unsullied paper into place. The distinctive clacking of the manual keys echoed around the room, sometimes in unison as all of us practiced the same phrases. I cursed the perverse inventor of the keyboard. Why make my feeble left-handed pinky in charge of the pervasive A? Why not swap it out with the seldom-used K, occupying the prime spot of the middle finger of my dominant right hand? The target was 45 error-free words per minute, the threshold for the marginally adequate typist. Finding that balance between speed and accuracy emerged as another life skill, one that would have served me well in taking the SAT test in a few short years. I quickly learned it was not in my nature to take my time, go slowly, and do it right the first time. My general impatience inevitably sabotaged any consistent attempt to reach the 45-word-per-minute target. I was an obedient child, a rule follower, but typing offered a safe opportunity for risk-taking. I enjoyed the thrill of pushing the limits until the feeble A would get entangled with the adjacent S, resulting in a tangled mess. The College Years, 1970-1974 through 1974. The manual typewriter segued into an IBM Selectric, a typewriter with true heft. The electric hum of progress emanated from its innards, and there before me, more visible than a motherboard or a whiz-bang chip, was the fruit of technological ingenuity, letters rotating on a ball, eliminating any tangling of the arms. The keys were slightly concave, creating a comforting tactile assurance that my fingertips were in the right place. In high school, term papers were still handwritten, but college professors expected typewritten papers. This standard spawned several workarounds for the inevitable errors. Liquid paper was a real lifesaver, but one that required a deft touch to apply a thin veneer of white paint that could be typed over. Thin pieces of paper dusted with white ink were another option to correct single-letter misspellings. Both strategies required the immediate recognition of errors, since rephrasing or even changes in the length of a word were impossible. This meant all initial drafts and revisions were still handwritten. Typing the manuscript was the last thing you did, often in the early hours of the morning as the deadline loomed. Typing was still mostly gender-specific, leading to interesting social dynamics. A girlfriend who could type was a real asset to a hot-and-peck boyfriend with limited typing skills. From the girl's point of view, typing the boyfriend's paper deep into the night demonstrated loyalty and commitment. 
The boyfriend might respond by assigning her a coveted drawer in his dorm room where she could store her clothes. A boyfriend without a typing girlfriend was shit out of luck, leading to ill-advised relationships. This dynamic was not without risk. A hack job could scuttle a relationship. I bungled the references in one paper I typed for a boyfriend. This error was beyond anything that could be addressed by liquid paper. Though in my defense, the reference style was not clear in the draft I was handed at 2 a.m. The references had to be handwritten in. The relationship barely survived. Summer Job, 1975 Ideally, one would like to have scintillating and intellectually stimulating summer jobs that leave you enthused about the working world and post-college prospects. Not so the summer of 1975, when I had a job in a botanic garden, stamping metallic tags for trees on an industrial typewriter. Words per minute were not a job qualification, since I had to bang down on the keys one by one. The sound was metallic, dissonant, rasping, brutal. Forget about using my pinky for the letter A. Only my two index fingers were strong enough to press down the keys. Each day my typing assignment consisted of a list of trees that had arrived from the nursery. I might find 235 individual tags for prunus patus, or 135 for the more challenging viburnum grandifolium, or 215 for Quercus alba. All day long I sat at the stamping machine in a stifling, airless garage. The machine blew hot air up my miniskirt, leaving my tender thighs stuck to the hot metal chair. This miserable job was inspiring in a way. It lit a small lamp of feminism. I was never going to accept typing as women's work, nor would I ever do typing for anyone else again. Men were on their own. Working World, 1984-1990 to after college, I went to medical school, followed by a pathology residency. My entire medical school education consisted of scattershot, multiple-choice questions, first a question on hematology, then perhaps cardiology, followed by some bizarre weeping skin disease. All I had to do was fill in the little bubbles on the answer sheet and pray they didn't get misaligned. I didn't type for eight years. After this dubious training, I went to work for the American Medical Association, writing reports on new medical technologies. Still, I didn't have to type. Secretaries were on call to type my handwritten drafts using an early version of a word processor. I would receive the first type draft, make handwritten revisions, return the document to the secretary for multiple rounds of revisions. I felt ashamed asking another woman to type my work. It was also an inefficient system. Inevitably, the well-meaning secretary would introduce new errors while correcting old ones. It was far quicker for me to do my own damn typing, and I was grateful for those long-ago lessons on the manual typewriter. I was a fine typist. Current Day I've been firmly ensconced in the word processing world for the past 25 years. The evolution of typing has reached a resting point for me. The deliberate clacking sound of the typewriter has evaporated, replaced by a softer, almost murmuring click as my fingers race across the keys with abandon. No longer do I have to balance speed with accuracy. I imagine an invisible minion scurrying behind me, tidying up my impetuous errors. I cannot imagine creating a handwritten first draft, and I wonder how word processing has changed the way I think. Before I had to carefully organize my thoughts, perhaps write up an outline, now I can just barf up anything onto the screen and work my way into the essay.
The handwritten first draft may have squelched blasts of creative barf, but the flexibility of the word processor might be dampening a more deliberate process. I no longer have to turn my ideas over and over before committing them to paper, polishing their rough edges like a smooth stone. I shudder at the new standard of perfection. Typos are no longer tolerated. I've spent hours searching for the last rogue typo, and then start the search again in case I've introduced a new one. Submitting a story for publication demands a slavish devotion to format. Any slight deviation can result in a fatal ding by an editor who's looking for an easy reason to reject something by the second paragraph. To me, that's like rejecting a cake with tilted tears and uneven frosting, as mine always are, without ever tasting it. Typing for a punitive taskmaster is a tyrannical process that can suck the life out of creativity. I regret that word processing has usurped the fine art of penmanship. My class eagerly awaited third grade when we'd learned grown-up cursive. I was proud of my grade-A efforts. Ernest Hemingway wrote out his first drafts in pencil and commented, Wearing down seven number two pencils is a good day's work. Opportunities for any handwriting are now minimal, limited to grocery lists, thank you notes, and condolence letters. My pencil sharpener sits idle on the back counter. I miss my handwriting, readable and beautiful. I particularly like the way I make the loops on my below-the-line letters. My lowercase g's and y's are peppy and confident. I can still recognize my father's careful and cramped writing filled with his unique spelling of the word stuff, S-T-O-U-G-H, which defies the savvy of spell check. My mother's handwriting was loopy and fluid, as if she was in a rush. Both styles reflected their personalities. I regret my children don't have many occasions to reflect on how my handwriting defines me. My adult children grew up in the era of word processing. They never had to learn cursive, never had to handwrite a first draft, nor navigate the gender politics of college typing. Word processing was just handed to them as if it always existed. Just as they cannot believe I grew up without a TV clicker, they cannot believe that liquid paper was a coveted item at 3 a.m.